All right, this is a passage that uh, I think all of you are very familiar with. It's taken from the first chapter of Genesis. A lot of people who start reading the Bible for the first time, they'll, they'll at least get this far. And uh, here, here in verse 26, it says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So you can see that uh, humans are unique in all of God's creation. He's given us the mental, the physical, the intellectual capacity to actually mirror God, to resemble him in some way. And so it says here, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And uh, I, I liked synonyms. And so when I see a word like, like, like likeness or image, I see what other words come to mind. And th there's some really great ones here if you Google these. Likeness could be resemblance. You know, I resemble so-and-so. Similarity, sameness. Similitude, that's, that's a word I don't often use. Correspondence, analogy, agreement, and I like equivalence. So in some sense, God has given us the ability to look, at, look like him. Now, it's obvious in some ways we don't look like God at all. For example, we don't have God's power. In fact, he's made us rather weak. So the question is, what is it? What sorts of, of characteristics or attributes are so important that God has given us the ability in some way to look like him. And, and here is an interesting visual. There's a young man here looking at the mirror, and he's, he, you can see his image on the left-hand side. And, and the reason I picked this particular image is because it seems to be distorted in some way. It doesn't look exactly like him. And back in the day when mirrors were first coming out, they could be really wavy, and you might not see a very clear reflection of yourself. But when God looks at us, his intention is that we mirror him, that we look like him in some way. And, of course, the question becomes, well, what happens if that image does become distorted? What if we don't look like God so much? Well, that's, that's partly why he gave us the Bible. That's the why, certainly the reason he gave us Jesus. Remember, Jesus had said to everybody, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So in other words, when we look at Jesus, when we read the Gospels, and we study him and his character, we get a glimpse of God himself. And so it's those characteristics that Jesus puts on display for us that uh, he, meant, he means for us to emulate. But, you know, there's, there's a number of characteristics that we could talk about. And what I thought we would do today is talk about a characteristic that I, I sense is probably the most important of all for us to emulate in God or in Jesus. And that characteristic is humility. And, of course, you might say, well, why, why not love? After all, in 1 John it does say God is love, and that's absolutely correct. But when you look at the underlying Greek word agape for love, you see that love really is not a state of being. It's not an emotion. Rather, it's an action word. It talks about how we do things for, for other people. Instead, humility seems to be an intrinsic, intrinsic trait about God. It's that, that characteristic that allows us to put ourselves aside. I think that's really a key part of humility, being able to put myself aside, put my, lay down my ego, show less concern about my self-esteem. Instead, I put others first. And uh, yes, you know, as I say, you know, love is, is really 
very crucial, but I think humility really lies at the core of love. It allows me to love. It allows me to love my spouse. It allows me to love my neighbor. And yes, it probably even allows me to love myself by putting myself aside. And there's a couple of places in the Bible I'd like to go to that, that helps to show this connection between humility and love. And the first one we'll go to is the the passage that Pete read for us from John 13, the first 17 verses. You know, it starts off by talking about how Jesus knew that that, uh, he had come from the Father and that he was going back to the Father, and his time had come. And he wanted to now show the full extent of his love. I know the passage read, love them to the end, but some some older versions of NIV say, say that he now wants to, to show them the full extent of his love. So this passage that we read starts off, at least on a, on a superficial level, is about dirty feet. And there were some more disgusting uh, pictures that I could have found from the internet, but I thought this was, this was most suitable. But this is pr- uh, probably the attire that people wore back in that day. You know, John the Baptist talks about how uh, he's not even worthy to untie the sandals that are on Jesus' feet, and they might have looked just like that. And you see they are tied up. And these bands that wrap around the skin, they probably were harsh. They probably abraded the skin. Uh, but, you know, the, the feet perspire more than any other part of the body, so I hear. And so a lot of dirt and filth collects. And when you're coming home, you'd like to be able to wash your feet, or if you go into a... Uh, a special gathering of people, usually uh, water is provided for the people who attend the gathering to, to wash their feet. And, uh, and this would be true for Romans, for Jews, it would be true for Samaritans, it would be true for everybody because they all wore this, this sort of uh, foot, footwear. And, uh, but, you know, it, it actually the, the washing of feet, though, has more significance to the Jews than it does for the Romans. If you go back and you take a look at uh, the, uh, the way the priests would uh, conduct themselves before they go into the, uh, the Holy of Holies, they would wash their feet. In fact, this is, this is toward the end of Exodus. You can check this later on. They had a bowl outside so that if they wanted to go into the tent of meeting or if they wanted to go into the temple or the tabernacle, the priest must wash their feet. So the bowl was there and available for that. So that significance is, is known to the disciples. You know, it certainly wasn't appreciated by, by other folks, but uh, the disciples would have known that. And, and I should say that Jesus loves to use metaphors. It's not a, really about dirty feet. For, for Jesus, this is really a great way to talk about the uncleanness of the heart. And, and that's really what this whole business of foot washing really gets at when the priest has to wash his feet before he goes into the temple. It's to become presentable because in the temple, you actually come into the presence of God. And in order to be together with God, you have to be washed clean. In fact, that's, that's language that's actually showing up in the passage that, that, that uh, Pete read. So this, this passage that we were looking at really takes place at the time of the Passover. And so the, they, they're not yet apostles, they're still disciples. So the disciples made arrangements in the upper room and likely part of the, uh, the price tag of renting this room was to 
have some bowls of, of uh, water, or not actually bowls, but, but uh, jars of water available and bowl, separate bowls you could pour some water into and uh, wash your feet. But, you know, I suspect they forgot to hire a slave or a servant to do this for each one of them. Besides, they're fishermen. They're probably thinking that, well, we prob- maybe we don't need this, uh, this water. We'll just, uh, we're just going to get dirtied up afterwards anyway. When we leave here, we're going to be walking around the streets of Jerusalem. So there's a lot of commotion, a lot of uh, uh, banter going back and forth. And who knows what they might have been talking about while they're having the, the Passover meal. Maybe James and John are still arguing about who's going to be sitting on the right hand and who's going to be sitting on the left hand of Jesus and his glory. Who knows what they're talking about. There's a lot of chatter and a lot of banter going on, and nobody's thinking about washing feet. However, at some point, Jesus gets up, and he walks over to the side of the room. And maybe a few eyes look over, and they think, well, what's Jesus up to? What's he doing here? And so he goes over, and he, he starts to uh, gather up the bowls and fill up the bowls with water, and he approaches the apostles or the disciples, and he, he's going to wash their feet. And I can imagine at this point, there's stunned silence. This is Jesus. This is the guy who taught with great authority. You know that from, from uh, the Sermon on the Mount. The, the, uh, those who heard Jesus were astonished at, at his teaching with great authority. Jesus is the guy who stood up to the Pharisees. He's the guy who walked on water. And now he's, appro- he's approaching the disciples to wash, wash their feet. And so uh, he maybe approaches the first disciple, and it says, according to the passage, he took off his outer garment. And again, Jesus is really rich in his use of metaphors. And so I really think that that means something, his taking off of the outer garment. I think he's, he's really telling people that he's putting himself aside. And that's really what the essence of humility is, is to put myself aside for the sake and benefit of others. And so that's what he does. And at this point, he starts washing the disciples' feet, and there's stunned silence. Nobody is saying anything. And yes, he even washes the feet of Judas as he goes around the table. And so it's quiet, except until we get to Peter. You know, Peter is the, the guy who is, is just uh, very, uh, what's the right word, brash? That's a combination of, of words there. He's brash, and he's, he's the first, usually the first to speak. And so when Jesus approaches him, he says, Lord, are you going to wash my feet too? And Jesus very gently and humbly tells him, well, Peter, you don't really exactly understand what I'm doing now for you, but eventually you will. And I think we all know what that eventually will involves. He's, he's basically alluding to the work that he will do on the cross. He will go to the cross. He will die on the cross in a very humiliating and horrible death. And through that, he would, he would take care of their sins. That's when Peter would understand. But Peter doesn't understand. He says, no, no, you're, you're not going to wash my feet. And then, again, Jesus says something remarkable. You know, actually, I'm skipping some slides here. These are some of the, this, this is uh, where, this is the sort of bowl that, uh, that you might pour the water into. And this is what they would have heard Jesus doing. And then eventually takes off the outer garment. And so he goes over to the disciples and he washes their feet. And, uh, and, and I have to admit that 
this would be very embarrassing for me to do this because you would, you would immediately realize that everybody sees all the dirt and filth on your feet. And maybe this is partly what Peter was embarrassed about. Yeah, he was very uh, embarrassed about this whole thing because maybe his feet were extra dirty and Jesus would see that, that dirt. But there's some scrubbing required and the dirt transfers from the foot over to the water. But when you're all done, those feet come out nice and clean. And this is what the priests would have done before they entered into the temple. And this is really what, uh, what Jesus wanted to do for Peter. And so when Peter says, no, no, Lord, you're not going to wash my feet, what does, what does Jesus say? Again, very gently and calmly says, well, Peter, unless I wash your feet, you have no part with me. And that's probably in the same sense of the priest. Before the priest goes in to be in the presence of God, he needs to wash his feet. He needs to be washed clean. Except here, Jesus is telling us that that, that real washing is something that's accomplished by Jesus. And, uh, and I, I believe that it's a metaphor for the eventual washing that takes place when Jesus goes to the cross. Our sins are kind of like that dirty foot that you saw a while ago. It's crusted over with layers of sin. It's crusted over with lies. It's crusted over with deceit and all the other sorts of things that you, you read about uh, in Mark 7, 21. That's a good place to go to. And so Jesus at the cross provides the means for our hearts to be washed clean. And actually, those words are not really meant just for Peter. And, and I think that's really an important takeaway that uh, we realize that that word, unless those words, unless I wash you, you have no part in me, those words are also meant for us. I can't imagine that's meant just for Peter alone. And uh, so the question for us is, when, when does that happen for us? When does, when does Jesus wash us? Well, we can take a look at various places in the Bible, and one of them I'd like to look at is... Uh, in Paul's conversion story. You know, Paul, throughout the book of Acts, he tells his own story a number of times, which is good. And uh, we know how this happened. He had this, uh, this uh, trip that he was making to Damascus, and uh, he was seeking out Christians who he would throw in prison. And so he is struck by light. He's, he's rendered blind. And so now he realizes that he's been doing the wrong thing all the way along. And so he's told that he would be met by a man by the name of Ananias. And so Ananias comes to him and uh, puts his hands on his eyes and scales fall off of his eyes and he's healed. So, and when it says here, then he said, we're referring to Ananias. He said, the God of our ancestors has chosen you, Paul, to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear words from his mouth. You will be his witness to all people of what you have been of to what to all people of what you have seen and heard. And now, what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, wash your sins away, calling on his name. So for Paul, for the earliest first century Christians, this would have been the moment that a person's sins were washed away. No, it's not it's not the water itself. You know, Peter recognizes that later on when you look at 1 Peter, he alludes to baptism, and he says, no, it's not, not getting rid of the filth of the body. It's this. It's washing away the sins that uh, are there in our hearts, and, we, and we, we are baptized in his name. The interesting thing I want to point out, though, is that 
Paul is not baptized until he has faith. I mean, would it make sense for Paul to be baptized when he's still going around rounding up Christians? That wouldn't make sense, would it? Would it make sense for, for Paul to be uh, baptized when he's there approving to Stephen's death? That wouldn't make sense. It really only is appropriate to come to this point in a person's life once they've, they've got faith, once they truly have humbled themselves. And that's another thing I want to point out. It's not enough for Jesus to humble himself on the cross and do for us what he did. We have to come to that cross in humility ourselves. So the best relationships, the ones that thrive, are where the two parties come together in humility on both sides of the equation. And that's exactly what Paul was doing here and what he realizes, that in response to his faith, not somebody else's faith, certainly not Ananias' faith, but in response to his, his faith now in Christ, that he's baptized so that his sins are washed away. And Paul also offers this. And actually, there's many passages uh, throughout, the book, uh, throughout the book of Acts and through the, the letters that uh, give a wonderful background on baptism. But this one I like from Colossians chapter 2. Paul says, In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. And so here he's talking about that cleansing of the heart. That moment when Jesus gets on the inside and washes the sins away that, that have held us back. And so when we do go into the waters of baptism, we, by faith we recognize that Jesus is behind the scenes. He's cleansing us. He's washing our hearts uh, free from the, the sins that are there. And so he goes on to say that, you know, the circumcision took place, circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism. So that's really when it happens. In which you were also raised with him through your faith in, in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And actually, I would encourage every one of us, you know, it's been a long time since we've really talked about baptism, but I think it's, it's a good time for every one of us here, whether you've been baptized or not, or you have a different view of baptism than, than what the first century folks have it's a good idea to read through all the passages on baptism and see what it meant to them back then. What did it mean to Paul? I think it could be very helpful. And for those of us who, you know, I was immersed when I was 26 years old, and I still am thrilled when I re-examine these passages to remind myself of what God did for me at that moment behind the scenes. You know, again, it's not the water that washes the filth away, it's Jesus who performs the circumcision. Another passage I wanted to go to that really focuses on the humility of our God. And, you know, I, I cannot begin to fathom you know, what really is involved in God putting himself aside so that he could come here and take the form of, a, of an infant and be raised just as, just as you and I are. And then eventually, well, he's, he's certainly persecuted by the, the Pharisees and then eventually put to death. I can't really describe it in words. Paul does, does his best here to describe that for us. So let's just read through this. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. 
Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the other. So you see this process of putting self aside for the sake of others, and that's what humility involves. It says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. You know, other translations would, would say something like, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, something to be held on to, something that we would even be able to comprehend. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by being, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And I don't need to tell you how, how much humiliation was involved in, in Jesus going to the cross. I mean, his friends had left him. He's there all alone. He's crucified in between criminals. So he's, he's in that sort of company. And, uh, and I know many artists will draw Jesus as being partially clothed while he's on the cross, but that's not the reality. Everything was stripped off of your body. In fact, the, the Romans were casting lots over who was going to get the inner garment. So this, was, this is the, the, the most extreme humiliation that you can possibly imagine, and this is something that Jesus willingly subjected himself to. It was not something that he was forced into. And this is something that I pondered for a very long time, and it's something for you to ponder as, as you leave here today. Why is it that humility is so elusive? And I've got this passage from Luke 17 that we hardly ever read together or study, but I think it does provide some insight into why people have such a difficult time with humility. Jesus teaches this. He says, suppose one of you has a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Will he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, come along now and sit down to eat? Won't he rather say, hey, prepare my supper. Get yourself ready and wait on me while I eat and drink. After that, you may eat and drink. Will he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. So I think he underscores the problem here. People are actively looking for a pat on the back. They're looking for an attaboy. They're looking for accolades. And now I want to be careful. I don't want you to, to somehow believe that you shouldn't appreciate one another. You should. You should be, we should be thanking each other. I think that itself is an act of humility when I say to Diane, thank you for teaching the ladies' class. Or Jim, thank you for leading sing singing this morning. That can itself be an act of humility where you're putting yourself aside and you're acknowledging somebody else. But to insist, to insist that people pat me on the back is not humble. It is arrogant. And so why do we go there? Why do we have that problem? And this is my own thinking. I got in the boxer. I wish I could put some famous person's name down alongside there, but I can't. It's, it's from me, so feel free to, to rework this however you wish. And so I, I think it really comes down to the messages that come from the world. They, are, they, they batter us and, and they come at us every day. But the messages from the world tell us we have no importance unless we prove our value in some way. 
And so what do we do in response to that? Well, we set out to prove ourselves. We really go out of our way. We make every effort to get, get out in front of others and promote ourselves and maybe even hurting others in the process. So that's, th that's what the world does to us. But, but God tells us from the very beginning, even before we've done anything at all, he pronounces us good, actually very good. And so he tells us that we have value simply because he made us. He created us to carry his image, to be his image bearer. And to me, that, that connotes remarkable, remarkable value. And that's before I've done anything. And so that's the message that we need to think of. And I think when we hold on to that, it becomes easier to find humility in our lives. Now, I, I was telling you, at the beginning, you know, what characteristic do I think is really key and crucial to who Jesus is? And I pointed out humility, and I was saying that that really is the core of love. But the question is, well, what does Jesus say about himself? I mean, that's more important than what I have to say. So I'll take you to this last passage here where, where we will wrap up. <clears throat> what does Jesus have to say about himself? This is taken from Matthew 11. I think we all love this, this passage, and I think we know it pretty well but sometimes we forget about the characteristics that Jesus uses to refer to himself. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and burden, and my burden is light. When I started reading the Bible intensely back in my 20s, what really got me the most was the characteristics of Jesus, and these are the ones right here. I was drawn in by Jesus simply because I saw him as a gentle person with a humble heart, somebody that I could go to and even talk about my sins with. And so uh, you know, that's, that's really, I think, where, where a lot of us need to begin is, is look at the characteristics and, and uh, behavior of Jesus, and we see these particular traits coming through. Actually, this is a two-for-one here, by the way. The gentle and humble in heart, you get both of them. But if we somehow can see our value through the eyes of God, through the eyes of Jesus, at that point, I think we can start to develop that humble heart, and at that point, we can start to, uh, to build up our image of God.